welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar, Associate Professor here at the Gatton College of Pharmacy, who is bringing you this podcast. I'm happy to be back in my office recording this. I was off uh, at HOPA last week, so um, got a lot of HOPA highlights to go over with you all. Uh, and then, you know, things just keep coming out <laughs> in Oncology Pharmacy. So uh, quickly, we'll run through some of the HOPA highlights, um, and then we'll get into uh, what we've missed in the past two weeks, because the New England Journal of Oncology keeps pumping out articles. Um, so HOPA is great. Again, as I said last week, I highly encourage you to go if you can. Next year, it's in Fort Worth. I was in Denver uh, for this uh, for last week's conference. Never been to Denver. Lovely city. It reminded me a bit of Indianapolis. Everything's pretty compact downtown, it seemed. I uh, had a lot of fun, and as always, one of the best parts of the meeting is, is catching up with old friends, old students, old uh, you know mentors and colleagues, and then making new friends, of course. I surrounded a lot of uh, you know Purdue folks who I, I hadn't met before, and that was great. So uh, really just a great time. What I want to do is go over some of the things that I learned. Um, I like to think that I, I, I stay up to date on as much as I can. I mean, I record a podcast about that, so this is this is like what I do. I love to stay current. I'm a big uh, oncology pharmacy nerd. So here are some things uh, that I learned uh, from this, and I thought that these would be worth sharing. Uh, and these are kind of just in order as, as they came through. Um, the first thing is the idea of PDL1 as an enriching biomarker. Uh, so there's a great presentation, and I can't get any of this stuff in real in, in a whole lot of depth, or else I'll be here for for six or seven hours. But when we think of biomarkers, this is something that you can test from the body, whether it's our own body or the tumor itself, that can tell you is a drug going to work or not, or how well will it work. Uh, so an example would be KRAS or NRAS. We know if you have a an activating mutation in KRAS or NRAS and colon cancer, an EGFR antagonist like cetuximab, pentumab will not work. It's very black and white as a biomarker. If you have that, we can't use those drugs, the EGFR antagonist. So we've been trying to figure out, is PDL one a useful biomarker for the use of immunotherapies, checkpoint inhibitors, so PD-1 or PDL one monoclonal antibodies. Um, and what we have seen is some discrepancy if you if you look at it very simply. Um, if you don't express PDL one the drug can still work. So it's not a, a black and white biomarker, but we've also seen that the more PDL1 that you do express, the better immunotherapy drugs tend to work. Um, and this is this is a term called an enriching biomarker. The more PDL1 you express, the better the drug will do. And the, the presenters did a really good job going into some of the implications of this with study design, as if you're trying to design a study, the drug will look better if you enrich your population with patients who have higher PDL1 expression on their tumors. Um, now, if you do that, you'll see a much larger delta effect. So the drug will look a lot better compared to the control. Um, however, one of the problems with that is people still respond to these drugs and have benefit even if they don't have a lot of PDL1 expression. So it presents a bit of a conundrum of what do we do? Uh, and just uh, yesterday in, in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, there was a study looking at uh, PDL1 and MHC2 uh, expression as kind of like a combination biomarker for classical Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I think that's where we may see the best biomarker use for our PD-1 and PD-L1 antibodies is looking at with each, with each, within each disease state, is there another factor or two that go along with PD-L1 uh, that can really tell us and predict 
who are the patients that should get the drug and who are those that we're wasting our time so we can uh, get them onto a better treatment. Um, <clears throat> last year we had our first FLT3 inhibitor, Mitostarin. There are more FLT3 inhibitors in the pipeline. Learned with great detail how, this, how the early and later and newer generation FLT3 inhibitors work on um, the FLT3 tyrosine kinase, whether it's the uh, the part right directly intracellular, the, ju the juxtaglomerular, not juxtaglomerular, but the juxta something, the next two domain inside the cell, or the actual kinase domain, and that has implications with which kinases uh, will retain activity with certain mutations uh, and resistance. So we're going to see, I think, more FLT3 inhibitors come out on the market besides uh, mitostarin, for those of you who do uh, AML induction where you are. We have several PARP inhibitors on the market now. Uh, interesting clinical parole, and this is why it's great to go to these conferences and hear experts speak about these drugs. If you go to, say, the elaborate package insert, you're going to see a high percentage of nausea. If you go to read any of the clinical studies describing elaborate, you'll see a high incidence of nausea. What those studies don't describe is how the nausea happens. It just treats it as a, as a yes or no. 64% had it, and then uh, conversely, 30-some percent did not. Um, but they don't tell you did it get better over time. How They do tell you how severe it was with grading. So what, what I learned is that with PARP inhibitors, the nausea is worst in the first month to two, and patients do develop tolerance over it, and that many clinicians do use prophylactic on Danzatron, for example, for that first month or two so patients can tolerate it. Um, so you might learn that if you really search the PARP inhibitor literature for a, a descriptive study of people describing that toxicity, but it's from talking to people and hearing them talk about it who use these drugs where you learn these little tricks. So that was great. Also learned that uh, the hematologic toxicity of PARP inhibitors uh, does not seem to be due to inhibiting the PARP enzyme, but due to this phenomenon called enzyme trapping. Uh, the keynote, my goodness, what a keynote. I talked a little bit uh, last week in the preview, or two weeks ago in the preview about uh, Dr. Cambridge. He is, in fact, British. We love accents in America, so that was great. Um, but he's a lung cancer specialist, and he's, he, he works uh, in Denver, so he didn't have far to go. But his presentation, I mean, I said it was a keynote. It was great. It was, it was must-see uh, listening and viewing. Um, so... Learned a lot of his talk talked a lot about the lessons that we've learned from drugs that come out on the market for lung cancer. Uh, lung cancer kills more people every year than any other cancer, so I think we should talk about it a lot more than we do. Uh, and I think his lessons were spot on. We've touched on some of that if you go back to Tales of Brave Arissa, uh, I think our second podcast. But one thing I learned this this thing called a tapo. I uh, never heard of this, and, and actually when I went back and found the study he mentioned it was his group that published this. So it's a TAPO, transient asymptomatic pulmonary opacification. And so some of these patients, um, they, his group has reported 20 patients, seven of whom had this uh, transient uh, asymptomatic pulmonary opacification. And the most important thing uh, is, and I think in that, in TAPO is the A, it's asymptomatic. These patients don't have symptoms, but on a routine scan, say at two months, they see something that looks like maybe this could be something bad. It's not really pneumonitis. It doesn't really look like pulmonary uh, fibrosis or interstitial pneumonitis or things that we worry about with lung cancer tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Uh, and this seemed to happen about 
two, uh, two months into it, the median time to this presenting was 8.7 weeks. The time to resolution was six weeks on treatment. So this seems to be this new thing that doesn't may not, as they say in the study, may not require stopping the drug. Um, so that I had never heard of that. Uh, another lung cancer thing I hadn't heard of, and it was a little painful as someone who really pays attention to lung cancer literature, is that the label for seritinib has changed. Um, and this change, from what I can gather, took place the day after Christmas. So Boxing Day, if you're Canadian, so December 26th, the label changed from seritinib should, should have been taken 750 milligrams on an empty stomach to being taken uh, 450 milligrams with a low-fat meal. And he presented that data. And what's great is the taking uh, the lower dose with a low-fat meal, besides being lower drugs, so in theory lower cost, right, lower pill burden. Uh, and by the way, if you want to find this, this is the Ascend 8 study. Um, but the CMAX and AUC were comparable between both groups, but the lower dose group had less diarrhea. Diarrhea went from 64 to 48% with the 40, uh, 450 milligrams with low-fat meal. Nausea rates went from 62 down to 46%. Um, so, you know, you're looking at 15% drops in side effects um, for diarrhea, nausea. Vomiting dropped from 42% to 23%, so maybe a 40% drop uh, in vomiting. So not only is this potentially cheaper, but also is going to make things easier for patients. And, and that led to a label change, apparently, which I didn't know about. But now I do, thanks to HOPA. Uh, similarly, just uh, yesterday, there was a study published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology looking at abiraterone. 250 milligrams with a low-fat meal uh, compared to the standard dose, which is 1,000 milligrams on an empty stomach. And the PI will say 1,000 milligrams of uh, abiraterone with a low-fat meal will increase the AUC like fivefold. With a high-fat meal, it's tenfold. So it's a big counseling point. Take your abiraterone on an empty stomach. And of course, the question is, well, it costs 10 grand a month or so. Couldn't we just take a quarter of the dose with food and maybe save a quarter of the cost, uh, and it seems that might be the case. Uh, so the lower dose, 250 milligrams with a low-fat breakfast, and these patients were counseled not to take, not to eat things like sausage, fatty foods, fried foods in their breakfast. They don't really describe what that is, uh, like what they recommended. Was it like skim milk and cereal? Uh, don't know. But what they were looking at was non-inferiority with PSA response, and that was just a phase two study. They're looking at uh, they're looking at even more uh, studies potentially. Uh, the authors don't say this should be the new standard of care, but certainly may be an option moving forward as well. <clears throat> Whew, I need to take a break. You guys keeping up? I'm having trouble myself. Um, there was a great molecular tumor board conference, and I can't get into that because that would take a ton of time for me to describe because I don't understand it all myself, but that was wonderful. Uh, and there was a presenter from St. Jude's in Memphis, uh, and I had never heard of this, uh, talking about NUDT15, which is a gene that encodes, encodes for uh, nucleotide triphosphate diphosphatase, which is part, which is an enzyme responsible for breaking down metabolizing uh, activated 6-mer captopurin, which is used in all ALL patients. So St. Jude's makes sense that they would study this. And of course, we all know about TPMT thiopurine methyltransferase, and we test for that before patients go on 6-MP. 
Well, they also test for NUD15, and she, uh, the presenter, described a patient whose life was likely saved by this upfront testing. So I'd never heard of that, so that seems like a new thing coming forward. I don't know how new it is, because I had not heard of this before, but when you think of um, pharmacogenetics and targeting dosing with 6MP, TPMT, as well as NUD-T15, and also don't forget xanthine oxidase inhibitors interact with 6MP as well. <clears throat> Uh, last thing I want to go over from the HOPA highlights was the biosimilar approval process. So when you read about this, it just says that the biosimilar has to be shown to be highly similar. And I didn't quite know what that meant, but uh, one of the, pre the, the presenter on this topic, you know, went into the uh, pulled out information from the FDA documents about what the F what FDA looks at when they're evaluating a biosimilar. And it's a lot of analytical and almost basic science testing. So they're looking at um, you know, how, stability over time, how much protein denaturation, for example, and things like that. Um, so I, have a, I feel like I have a much better grasp on what a biosimilar is and how it gets to market compared to other drugs. Okay, now obviously there was a whole lot more that was discussed at HOPA than, than that. Uh, but those were some of the highlights, some things uh, that I, uh, that I, um, you know, had not, had not known and learned about. So while that was all happening, lots of other stuff was going on. So we have a couple FDA updates. Uh, so March 20th, uh, so sometime last week, Brintuxmab Vidotin was approved in stage three and stage four, uh, classical Hodgkin's lymphoma. Most people uh, who follow Hodgkin's thought this was going to happen based on, uh, what was published earlier, uh, uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine. So, <clears throat> so classically treatment of uh, Hodgkin's disease is ABVD. So this substitutes brintuxmab vidotin for bleomycin. The idea being the drug hopefully will work better than ABVD and have less pulmonary fibrosis. Um, so this led to a, an 18% uh, progression or death event rate uh, in the brintuximab group versus 22% in the bleo group, uh, which was statistically significant. Overall survival endpoints are still mature. Um, the dosing for brintuximab historically is 1.8 mg per kg every three weeks because ABVD, and we're replacing one, uh, one B for another, we're replacing, replacing brintuximab for bleomycin. It's a day one, day 15 cycle, so it's Q2 weeks. So the dose is 1.2 mg per kg. Now it is capped at 120 milligrams. Historically, and even the ASCO guidelines say we don't cap drugs um, when we're dosing, at least based on body surface area, uh, especially with curative intent. But brintuximab is a drug that is capped at 100 kilograms of body weight, basically. So 120 is the max dose, uh, and that's for 12 doses, which is six cycles. Um, in the study, they did see uh, patients who did not receive prophylactic growth factor, they had a 21% rate of febrile neutropenia. Uh, for that reason, uh, they do recommend empiric growth factor um, with patients taking brintuximab, uh, and that's even in the label. We did see more myelotoxicity and peripheral neuropathy in the brintuximab group, which is not, which is consistent with its known toxicity profile. And of course, without the bleomycin, we don't have to worry about the pulmonary fibrosis. So that's, uh, that's brintuximab. I think uh, my big question now moving forward is what do we call this regimen? You know, the, the, the write-up from the FDA calls this Adceteris plus AVD, Adceteris being the brintuximab brand name. I don't really like that. But we can't do like A 
B2VD or a BVVD or a little BVV, you know, it's, it's going to be confusing what do you call this. And we already have, and I, I see the frustration when I have learners on my service and we use our, our alphabet soup, our oncologies, the language of oncology. Uh, the letter C stands for like seven different drugs in oncology. And now we've got a little B, or we got B for brintuximab, replacing the B bleomycin in the ABVD regimen. Um, so I, I think I, I would call it ABVVD versus et cetera plus ABD. But that's just me. We'll see. You know, society's going to have its say on this, I'd say. Uh, March 22nd, nilotinib was approved um, for pediatric CML. So uh, we had desatinib was approved and um, oh goodness. I'm not going to talk a whole lot about peds because I don't practice in peds, so I don't feel like I have a lot to say or know, but uh, I just got an email that the FDA has granted accelerated approval to blinitumab for pre-B cursor ALL in um, first or second CR with MRD. Okay, so then there's another update now. Blinitumab gets another, uh, another indication, uh, accelerated approval. So that's great. The hits just keep on coming. So those are the FDA updates. A couple other big things came out I want to go over just briefly as we probably set a new record for longest podcast here at Oncofarm. So I mentioned the New England Journal of Oncology. The last two weeks, several kind of big things have been published. Uh, two of them, uh, venetoclax, one being a phase three study of venetoclax, which is the BCL2 inhibitor, that with rituximab for relapsed refractory CLL, this was last week, which was March 22nd, so this was a phase three study versus, um, versus bendamustine rituximab uh, with no crossover. So nobody crossed over from the venetoclax group or from the bendamustine group. So the two-year progression-free survival rate, wait for this, the two-year progression-free survival from the start of study until patients either progressed or died, two years later, 84.9% of patients on the venetoclax rituximab arm had not progressed or died versus 36% on the bendamustine rituximab group. That's a number needed to treat of two. We have to treat two patients with venetoclax rituximab over bendamustine rituximab to prevent one progression or death for two years. That's a pretty big, that's a pretty big benefit. Um, smaller study, phase two study, only 24 patients, venetoclax plus ibrutinib, for mantle cell lymphoma, uh, and they report a, a pretty astounding 71% CR rate as assessed by PET scan. Um, the venetoclax started uh, a month after abrutinib, so abrutinib for a month, and then the ramp up of venetoclax. Venetoclax has a high risk of tumor lysis syndrome, so you start at a little itty bitty dose, and every week you increase the dose up to your target dose, which is usually about 400 milligrams. Uh, despite the precaution, so abrutinib was started a month early, to hopefully get some cytoreduction. reduction. And then venetoclax, dose escalated very slowly. There were still two cases of tumor lysis syndrome. Um, another takeaway from this small itty bitty phase two study, despite the really high complete response rate, is this is an all oral regimen for mantle cell lymphoma. So venetoclax and ibrutinib both are PO agents. Uh, again, continuing the shift we've seen away from the infusion center to the doctor's office and to the specialty pharmacy for treating cancers. There was uh, a study uh, yesterday in England Journal Medicine looking at minimal residual disease for AML and the risk of relapse. <clears throat> so classically, 
for acute myeloid leukemia, you give them their 7 plus 3, their induction chemo. Two weeks later, you look in the bone marrow. Uh, historically, you would look, how many blasts are there? You're looking at basically, you're judging the book by the cover. And the cover is the percent blast. If it's less than 5%, you say, this is great. We think we've reached complete remission. Now, minimal residual disease is looking inside the book, inside that less than 5% of blasts, and seeing, do any of those blasts, do any of those immature uh, hematopoietic cells, do any of them have the same mutation that we knew the cancer had before we started chemo. That's minimal, resi minimum residual disease. And we've always thought, and probably the experts are, knew this, that this led, that we had not done as good a job as we had hoped with our induction chemo, and there was a greater risk of relapse in the patients with minimum residual disease. And now we know that that is true. And they're using next-gen sequencing. They used Illumina, uh, uh, that proprietary test for this. Oh. Two more to get through. So uh, the IDEA study was actually a collection of six randomized controlled clinical trials, randomizing patients in different countries all around the world to either three or six months of adjuvant chemo for stage three colon cancer, either Folfox or Kpox. Big picture, this was a non-inferiority study. They did not show non-inferiority, but in some of the subgroups, there are some differences. Um, so the non-inferiority margin was 1.12, so 12%, pretty reasonable, uh, and that would equate to a 2.7% decrease in three-year disease-free survival. Generally, after three years with colon cancer, if it hasn't come back, you're probably cured, so that three-year disease-free survival rate would make sense. You could quibble maybe 2% better, um, but this is, this is fair, all right? And 12,000 patients to do this. So what they found is that overall, three months was not inferior to six months, but in patients who received Kpox, that's the Cape side of being twice a day for two weeks, every three weeks, oxaloplatin day one, every three weeks, Kpox was non-inferior and even numerically superior to Folfox, although not statistically significant. So Kpox was non-inferior. So some patients may be able to get by with just three months of adjuvant chemo if it's Kpox. But those patients would not be those with high-risk disease. Those would be those that have a T4 lesion, meaning almost total invasion, uh, or N2, uh, TNM staging. That would be four or more positive lymph nodes. Those folks, not only was three months not inferior to six months for the high-risk patients, six months was superior to three months. So what we might see changing is like the NCCN guidelines for stage three colon cancer for those patients who are candidates. If you're high risk, so T4 lesion, N2 status, it's six months of full Fox or Kpox. For those who are not high risk, six months of full Fox, and maybe they might even recommend three months of Kpox for those patients. I think certainly if you have a patient who you're, you're not confident based on their, maybe they're an ECOG 1 plus and not in a great shape, you're a little worried about their ability to tolerate six months of adjuvant chemo and they, they don't have those high risk features, Maybe you start with Kpox, and if you get three months and they're just fighting, 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 and wanting to stop treatment, maybe you feel a little bit better about stopping Kpox early compared to Folfox. And finally, the last study I'm going to talk about is Checkmate 214. This was published in uh, New England Journal of Medicine last week. A thousand patients with uh, untreated advanced renal cell carcinoma randomized to Sinutinib, which is still the FDA uh, standard, presumably, although most folks nowadays would probably use Pazopanib up front. So standard sunitinib, 50 milligrams 
daily for four weeks, two weeks off, or nivolumab plus ipi for a month. So nevo three mg per kg, uh, ipi one mg per kg every three weeks for four cycles, they call that the induction phase, followed by a maintenance phase of nivolumab three mg per kg. Now, <clears throat> the study pretty quickly figured out that for the favorable risk folks, so this is looking at um, the criteria like uh, LDH and time from nephrectomy to when they have advanced disease, those, those risk categories. If you had favorable risk, the sunitinib group actually had a 93% 18-month overall survival compared to 88% in the immunotherapy group. So for favorable risk, favorable risk folks, sunitinib was better. But for the people who are immediate and poor risk, there is a 75% overall survival in immunotherapy versus 60% with TKI. That's the number needed to treat of seven to prevent one death uh, over 18 months. Now, toxicities were what you'd expect between combo immunotherapy. We know Nevo, Epo to, Nevo and Ipi together is pretty toxic, and we know what to expect from sunitinib. There were eight treatment-related deaths in the immunotherapy group and four treatment-related deaths in the sunitinib group. So you would have to weigh that. You would have to weigh the toxicity with this immunotherapy regimen. But I think we're going to see more of these studies, in um, uh, certainly in renal cell carcinoma. And, and the next step is to see some randomized phase three studies published of immunotherapy plus a VEGF TKI. So that's it. We made it in less than a half hour. Uh, another big thing that's happened. It's opening day for Major League Baseball. Uh, at least at the time of starting this podcast, the Cubs were winning. Five to four. I hope that's the, the case. Um, thank you all for listening. If you've hung on this long to this marathon of a podcast, find us on iTunes. Uh, rate us, review us, tell us what you'd like to hear. Um, you can find us on Twitter at OncoFarmPod. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at FarmDTNIP. Uh, and as always, thanks for listening, and I hope to see you a little further down the road.